This morning we have the privilege of studying Parshas Chayisar together. It's page 106 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumish. And as we do every week, we'll give an overview of the Parsha and then delve into the opening of the Parsha this week, the specific Psukim together. Parshas Chayisara begins where, uh, I say this every week, where Vayera left off. It's true every week. But uh, the end of last week's Parsha, we read of the Akedah, the story of the test, both of Avraham, who gets most of the who gets most of the appreciation and attention, but the test of Yitzchak as well. A test that both of them passed Yachtav equally together. Only they suffer the consequence, the ramification at the beginning of this week's parasha, when Avram returns from the Akedah and finds that Sarah has expired. Sarah has passed away due to the false report that not only did Avram take Yitzchak towards the Akedah, but that he had completed the Akedah. And again, we'll get into this when we review these opening psukim. And so Avram returns to find that Sarah had passed away, had left from this world. The Torah remarks about the extraordinary life that she led and begins by telling us about how Avram was so devoted, so dedicated to find this burial plot for her. In fact, we invoke this in every wedding, which is kind of a peculiar time to invoke this dedication, this loyalty. The halacha is kicha kicha mistei Avram, mistei Ephron. We learn that when a chassan, a groom, acquires his wife, his bride, that's not misogynistic or sexist. It means that he takes the initiative and demonstrates his desire to bond with her, but she has to receive it. If a woman rejects the gesture of kedushin, the betrothal, they're not married. A man can't marry a woman against her will. So it's not empowering the men over the women. Each needs to participate and each needs their consent. Kicha, kicha, we learn that a man acquires, ha'isha nikneis, a woman is acquired, shlosha drachem in three ways. The cast of shtar will be in the Mishnah and Kedushin, that through a document or a contract, which is not what our modern day ksuba, ksuba is not the contract. Ksuba are the terms, or the obligations, the responsibility, financial and otherwise, to the marriage. But it means that in the time of the Mishnah, there was the option, the alternative. One could marry through one of three mechanisms. One could either sign a contract, enter a document that they're agreeing to be married, or be through the act of intimacy, by behaving as a husband and wife, they would be married. Or the third alternative, which is the one that we universally follow today, which is kesef. The man gives a woman, we give the practice, we give a ring that has no stone, because we don't want the woman to get some uh, magnificent stone and accept the proposal, assuming she's getting a million-dollar ring. It turns out it's a cubic zirconium. It turns out it came from the bottom of the cereal box. It turns out that it's worthless, in which case the entire, the entire marriage will be nullified because it was predicated and based on a false, on a false premise. So therefore, we have the practice of giving a plain ring. can be made of any material, but without a stone or engraving, so that it's very clear to both parties what's being given and what's being received. And through that mechanism, they're married. Where do we learn kesef? So the Pasuk uses the language of kicha in the context of marriage. And the Pasuk uses the, con- the, uh, uses the word kicha here in the context of Avram acquiring a grave, a burial plot for his wife. Where does it say kicha here? Uh, 
נסעתי כסף השדה, קח ממני ואקבר אסמייסי שמה. אז אברהם אומר, קח ממני. So kicha kicha Avram mistei Efron that Gzeir Shava the commonality of the word kicha teaches us that just like Avram purchased acquired the property with money so to a man betrothed a woman with money now I ask you as somebody who's holding a shtickle in this parsha is under the chuppah the most is it the is it romantic to invoke death and Mr. Chassan you're about to hand a ring to your wife and when she accepts it when the bride accepts it the two of you will be married and from where do we learn this beautiful bond this unbreakable connection we learn it when Avram bought a cemetery plot for his wife could there be anything less romantic less magical less appropriate for that moment imagine the rabbi's speech under the chuppah I get into the intricacies of acquisition of transaction, kicha kicha, it's working, it's acquiring, it's chal, just like, what's the pshat? So many have explained that it's exactly appropriate. And it's in fact incredibly romantic. Because what we're telling the chassan and kala, and in our generation we can appreciate this, in our disposable world, in which we flippantly and casually reject and dismiss and trade in and upgrade and end and grow bored, We tell the chassan and kala as they stand under that chuppah that their intention should be till death do us part. Kicha, kicha, mistei, Ephron. That your standing as you give that ring is the same level of devotion, commitment, love. In fact, only multiplied and greater till death do us part, till the end of life. That's the level of loyalty, the level of devotion, the level of dedication. As I said, in our generation, in our world, we need this message and this idea in which people, they don't try, they don't make an effort, they don't give it their all. There are times divorce is appropriate. It's a mitzvah in the Torah as well. It's not a mitzvah chiyuvis. It's not an obligatory mitzvah, but a mitzvah chiyuvis. That their Torah has what to say, not unlike other religions. There are marriages that need to be dissolved, that are not meant to continue together. That too is a mitzvah, but the mentality. Nobody stands under the chuppah with the goal of getting divorced. Nobody stands under the chuppah with the intention of not growing old together. So that language, that notion, till death do us part is a Jewish idea. That's kicha kicha. That's what it means that we learn betrothal, we learn the love, the devotion, the dedication, that, that connection under the chuppah from the lifelong devotion and dedication of Avram towards Sarah and Sarah towards Avram, that till death do us part. And that's the whole opening of our, of our parsha. Yes. I don't have it. The seat's up here. If you want to move up, please feel free. So that's the beginning of the parsha. The parsha continues that Avram finishes the Shiva arrangements, the mourning, the grieving for his wife. And immediately, at that moment, Avram feels blessed with everything. We've learned that section in the past. You can listen online if you'd like. But what does it mean? That's also a very peculiar reaction. He gets up from Shiva for the loss of his life partner, of his other half, of his wife. And he says, Hashem, you're amazing. You give me everything. What do you mean? You've just taken everything. How could he feel Hashem has given everything? He's just taken everything from Avram. We mentioned last week, Avram's life ends for practical purposes, with Sarah's death. We don't find any more stories of Avram, the transformational leader. 
Avram, the charismatic personality, Avram who transforms the world, his career is over. Sarah's not only his other half, Sarah's his better half. She's a greater Nevia, she's a greater prophetess. And he's incomplete without her. And we don't find him any longer on the stage of history with Sarah's passing. Avram essentially is retired. The only other stories we have are his arranging the burial plot for Sarah and finding a wife for his son Yitzchak. So his life is over. And what's his reaction to his life being over? V'ashem beirach is Avram, bakol. In fact, Hashem blesses Avram with everything. Really, it's the opposite. You know, towards the end of the parsha, it describes that when Yitzchak marries Rivka, Vayinachem Yitzchak acharei imo. Yitzchak is comforted now, finally, for the loss of his mother. We know Rivka enters the tent, and the miracles that existed due to Sarah's righteousness, those miracles continue. And so Yitzchak feels holy, feels complete. Not that one can ever replace a mother, not that everyone can replace someone who's lost, but he's comforted. And Rabbi Soloveitchik points out that we don't find Yitzchak mourning for Sarah until he marries Rivka with that comment that now he's comforted. In the beginning of the parasha, we'll come back to this, Yitzchak is noticeably absent. Why isn't he with his father? Acquiring a grave, negotiating, making the burial arrangements, delivering a hesped, a eulogy for his mother, sitting in mourning and grieving and crying. Yitzchak's name is absent from the beginning of the parsha. You would expect Sarah dies, and it has an enormous impact on Avram and Yitzchak. And yet we only see Avram. Where's Yitzchak? Where is he? All right, I'll tell you now. So one opinion is, we're going to go back to the beginning, but one opinion is, where's Yitzchak? So the Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar says, the verse should have described who attends the funeral, who makes the arrangements, how many shiva chairs need to be delivered to Avram's tent. Two. But it doesn't mention it. Should have said Yitzchak as well. Certainly Yitzchak's a good loyal son. He's not going to eulogize his mother, cry for her. In fact, one would have anticipated for whom would the loss be greater? Yitzchak. His mother Sarah longed for him, waited for him, for her whole life, davened for him. And their lives, their souls were intertwined. Says Rabbi Nebachi, a radical pshat. You know why the Torah doesn't mention Yitzchak? Because he wasn't there. Says Rabbi Yitzchak. Why did Sarah die? What was the cause of death? She was scared to death. She had heard that Avram had not only set out on the Akedah, he'd followed through on the Akedah. Her precious, her one and only the one whom she longed for, waited for, and dedicated her life to, Yitzchak, is gone. She had nothing to live for. She died. Could you imagine Yitzchak carrying that burden? Yitzchak feeling that guilt? That because he cooperated with the Akedah, or there was this tzivu, this command of the Akedah, at which he was the centerpiece, that that's why his mother died? 
And so the decision was made, says Rabbi Nubachia, not to tell Yitzchak. Not to tell him. In those days, it's not that he would make a phone call or a text or an email and miss her. He wasn't in her presence. He didn't know, he didn't need to know. Says Rabbi why am I so confident in offering this pshat? Says Rabbi Nebachi, how do I know Yitzchak didn't know? Because it describes that Avram returns from the Akedah and he takes the lad, Ne'arav, not Ne'arim. It's not in the plural, it doesn't include Yitzchak. Why? Where is Yitzchak? Yitzchak spent the next three years on Har Moriah. We have this image that they go up to the Akedah together. The Malach intervenes, intercedes and says, slaughter the ram, not your son. They exhale. There's a huge sense of relief. And the two walk down the mountain together. Says Rabbi Nebachia, that's not an accurate picture. Accurate picture. It's not what happened. They walk up together, and then Avram leaves Yitzchak. He is a holy offering, an elevation offering, a korban ola. And he spends the next three years in meditation and contemplation and self-growth on Har HaMoriah. And only when he hits his 40th birthday, we know he was 37 for the Akedah, again, despite the image that he's some little child, little boy, he's 37 years old. It's around my age. Around. Around. Around my age. It's a grown man. 37 years old. Yitzchak is a major participant. He's not a passive. He's an active participant in this story. Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar says he stayed on Har Moriah for three more years, only descended at 40, and married Rivka. And that's why we don't find his reappearance. I mean, did it occur to you also later in the parsha, which we're up to, that Avram realizes, I need a wife for my son. Where is this discussion about you're crafting uh, Yitzchak's shidduch resume, or you're looking through other people's shidduch resume? Why isn't Yitzchak in the conversation? Avram recruits who? Eliezer, where's, where's Yitzchak? We don't hear about Yitzchak again until Eliezer returns with Rivka. From the Akedah until Eliezer comes home with Rivka, we don't see Yitzchak. Why? He was on top of the mountain. The Medrash says, So Rabbeinu Bachya has this very radical pshat. The why is Yitzchak not mentioned in the beginning of the parasha? Because he didn't know. And he wasn't there. Now obviously he found out. And maybe now it makes sense. He finds out when he returns, he descends from the mountain to marry Rivka. And then he's told, not only are you marrying Rivka, Rivka's taking your mother's place. What do you mean? What happened to mom? Three years ago, she didn't survive. You survived the Akedah. She was the victim of the Akedah. If anyone asks you, in the Akedah, did anyone die? Was there loss? Or was there miraculous salvation from Hashem? With the announcement from the angel, the answer is there was an enormous casualty. It wasn't Yitzchak, and it wasn't Avram, and it wasn't even the ram. The casualty of the Akedah Sarah. 
Sarah lost her life. So Yitzhak returns to marry Rivka and he's told, your mother won't be attending the wedding. Three years ago she passed away. We didn't think you could handle it then. And then he brings Rivka into the tent and maybe now we appreciate more. Vayinachem, he's comforted. Vayinachem, what's the language? Vayinachem Yitzhak acharei imo. That Yitzhak is comforted for the loss of his mother. Why now, three years later? The answer is, at least according to Rabbi Nebachia, it's not three years later. The loss is acute. It's immediate. This is when he first learned of it. So when he marries Rivka, you can't ever replace a mother. You can't ever replace a mother. But when he, when he marries Rivka, he feels a sense of comfort because that's exactly when he had found out. Now, didn't the Avos observe all of Torah? Shmur Rechoka. He had heard later. Mestameh kept one day of Shiva. So Mestameh kept one day of Shiva because it was a Shmur Rechoka. It was three years later. Okay, fine. Rabbi Salavechik has a different answer. Why isn't Yitzchak mentioned in the beginning of the parsha? Rabbi Salavechik has a different answer based on an insight of Chazal. Chazal of a dictum, they have a maxim, they say, it's a Gemara in Sanhedrin Chavbez. The Gemara says, Ein isha mesa ela labayla. The loss of a person is great. The children feel that loss. Siblings feel that loss. Rahman al-Islam, parents. It's not the way of the world. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But parents lose a child. They feel that loss. But nobody feels a loss like a spouse. Ain isha mesa ela labayla. When a person passes, a, a piece of the surviving spouse is gone, is missing. A piece of them has died. Ain isha mesa ela labayla. So Yitzchak is not mentioned. Why? Not because he wasn't there. And not because he didn't mourn in this interpretation. Yitzchak's not mentioned in order to communicate, to transmit that the most powerful, profound sense of loss is the spouse. Ain isha mesa ela labayla. In fact, Rabbi Salavitchik says in the beginning of the parasha, Vilivko Sa'avram comes, he eulogizes his wife Sarah, and he cries. And Rabbi Salavitchik points out grammatically, it should have been written, Vilivkos Aleha. He came to cry over her. Why does it say Vilivkosa, a transitive verb? The grammatical, grammatic implication of a subject and an object. So Rabbi Salavitchik points out why. It should say Vilivkos Aleha. He came to cry over her. Vilivkosa grammatically sounds like subject and object. Why, says the Rav? Because Sarah was a piece of him. As if Sarah and Avram were the same person. The use of the grammatical structure implies a unity of identity. Avram was not only crying for Sarah, he was crying for himself, as if a part of himself had died. Ain isha mesa ela Avram was crying for her, the loss of her, but with her went a piece of himself. He was mourning himself in another sense as well. With Sarah's death, the Masorah is now entrusted to Yitzchak. With Sarah's death, Avram leaves the historical arena. He mourned all that he could no longer accomplish. He understood without her he was incomplete. He was no longer that transformational figure. And therefore, his legacy was locked, was secure. He mourned her. He mourned a piece of himself that went with her. And he mourned that this was the end of his career. He would continue to live and he would have the merit to see his son married, but that was the end of his career. Ain isha mesa ela labayla, so two opinions at the end. 
Anyway, all that is by way of asking, what do you mean Avram Beirachas Hashem ba- Avram felt Hashem blessed Hashem Beirachas Avram Bakol. He just lost a piece of himself, his other half, his better half. And now is when he feels loved. So we've discussed this in the past based on the insight of Rav Kook. What does it mean Bakol? Avram has this bracha of Bakol. And he gives it to Yitzchak, Mikol. And Yitzchak transmits it to Yaakov, who says, Kol. And maybe familiar, that sounds familiar. When do we invoke that bracha? In benching, we say, Hashem, give us kol. And where's, where do we get kol from? Bakol, mikol, kol. Because we have a mesorah, we have a heritage. What is this bracha of kol? So, in the past, we shared Rav Kook's insight. But I saw this morning the Imre Chaim, the vision of Tzarebbe. He says the following. Quotes from the Rebbe HaKadosh of Baruch Mimejbuz. Right? We say in our davening, And on everything, Hashem our God, we are grateful to you. What is it we're grateful for? What does it mean to have If you're our God, we have everything. V'yalakol. It's not that for everything, now we're addressing Hashem, excuse me, Hashem Elokeinu, Anach We're describing, we're defining. V'yalakol. And for everything. And what is everything? What does it mean to have everything? To have everything is Hashem Elokeinu. What it means to have everything is Hashem Elokeinu. To have Hashem. Yosem mikolonu modem lachal shata Hashem Elokeinu. V'zeu Hashem berach hazavrim bakol. Avram had the greatest bracha, the ultimate bracha. What's the ultimate bracha? To live life with a sense, Hashem Elokeinu, that Hashem is my God. No matter what I'm going through, no matter how hard, how challenging, how difficult, how painful, that I'm not alone, and that I've not been cast aside, and that it's not random or chance or meaningless, but that everything is by design. Somehow, and to live life with that faith. Al hakol. What it means to have everything is to have that Hashem Elokeinu. That Hashem is our God. And that Hashem is always with us. So it says, V'dorshe Hashem lo chol tov. Dorshe Hashem. Those who are Dorshe Hashem. If you acquire after, if you inquire after Hashem, lo yachsuru, you'll never be missing kol. Kol tov. Shlo dorshe Hashem afpan lo chasar klum. If you're a Dorshe Hashem, if in every circumstance and every scenario, the good ones and the bad ones, but you're always searching for the hand of Hashem, you're trying to feel His presence, you're receiving His love, you're a Dorshe Hashem, then, you'll never be missing Kol Tov. You'll always be able to find the good. That what Avram gave Yitzchak, and what Yitzchak gave Yaakov, and what Yaakov gave us, and what we ask for in our benching is midas histapkos. That Hashem, let me feel I have whatever I need. Hashem, let me feel that whatever you've given me is what I need. Let me feel no matter what I'm going through, that you are that you are by my side, no matter the moment, no matter the challenge, no matter the difficulty. So that's what Avram does. 
he loses Sarah, and immediately he realizes, my career is over. I need to pass the baton. I need to transmit the legacy. But my son can't do it alone. He needs to build his own home. For there to be a continuity, he needs to give me aniklach. I need grandchildren and great-grandchildren. So immediately after this loss of sorrow, what does he do? Immediately, he gets up from Shiva. It's time to make a shidduch for Yitzchak. For God's sakes, he's 40 years old. He needs a wife. It's time to come down from the mountain, leave the kailal. It's time to get married. And so Avram immediately begins to send out Yitzchak shidduch resume. It's time for Yitzchak. It's time for Yitzchak to get married. This is, this is one of the tests of Avram. According to Rabbeinu Yonah, the 10th test was not last week. According to Rabbeinu Yonah, the 10th test was this week. Now, Rabbeinu Yonah does not explicitly say what is that 10th test. Right? We know we have a tradition that there were 10 tests. You go through the Torah, you can even include the Midrashim, and there's a fun exercise of trying to identify what are the 10 tests. 10 tests. And the Rishonim debate, what are those 10 tests? So most have the tradition. The Akedah was the ultimate test. That was the 10th. Rabbi Yonah says, no, the 10th one's in Parshish Chayisara. What is that 10th test in Parshish Chayisara? So one opinion of Desta, the Mechdam says, you know what the 10th test was? Dealing with Ephron Hachiti. Ephron was a corrupt used car salesman, no integrity, miserable, low-life, manipulative, taking advantage of Avram in his moment of grief and sorrow. While Avram is in his moment of grief and sorrow, would it have been justified to lose his patience with this manipulative, corrupt salesman? Absolutely. One would understand that this bereaved man broken-hearted man who had just lost his other half, his better half, would lose his cool with this incorrigible low-life Ephron, one would have understood. But Avram remains the quintessential mensch. He keeps his menschlichkeit, his derecheretz, the way he conducts himself with Ephron, even in the most horrific circumstance, says everything about who he is. It says everything about who he is, his menschlichkeit. Avram doesn't turn inward. Avram turns outward. He maintains his menschlichkeit even in that circumstance. And that's the greatest testimony of who he is. And that's the test that Avram passes. I was astounded. I, I, we'll talk about when we get to the beginning of the Parsha. But Sunday, tragically, I went to New York for a funeral of an incredibly special, extraordinary woman in our community. A 33-year-old mother of three who succumbed to illness. And... Um, Tragic, tragic funeral and loss. Her husband, Rabbi Grejauer, a Rebbe in the high school, she was a teacher at Hill Day School. So he, first of all, talk about Vashem Beirach Avram Bakol, that you have Bakol if you feel Hashem is with you. He, did an, he gave an amazing gift to the children of this community. I'm sure he did it intentionally, but I don't know if he appreciates even what a gift it was. Because the children of the community who've lost their teacher, who no one knew she was ill. She's suffered for eight years in silence and didn't want to be defined, didn't want to be a source of sympathy or a burden, and didn't tell anyone. Literally, didn't, people did not know. Her students are broken, understandably broken. And many have questions and questions of faith. So Begrejauer began his eulogy for her, by Evola Spode, Valif Kosa, and he began, before he spoke about her, he said, I want to say two things. He said, number one, 
We work for God. God does not work for us. We work for God. God doesn't work for us. And number two, struggling to understand is not the same as struggling to believe. It's okay to be filled with so much pain that it's hard to see or feel Hashem. Struggling to understand is not the same as struggling to believe. And it's okay to be struggling. And he gave a license. He gave permission. First of all, he obligated everyone to maintain their faith because if he could maintain his faith, <laughs> to lose his wife, the mother of his children, and he described in the eulogy in anticipation, this eight and five and three years old, what will their bar and bat mitzvahs look like and their weddings and so on. And nevertheless, despite that, to maintain his faith that we don't, God doesn't work for us, we work for him. But also to give a license that just because you're struggling doesn't mean you're struggling you're struggling to believe. Absolutely extraordinary. That was public. That everybody saw. What they didn't see, I came back Sunday night, and Monday morning I woke up early in the morning to a text from a Regrej hour thanking me for having come up and, and for speaking, and that was Avram. When a person is entitled to turn inward, to grieve, to mourn, to even be rude, to be inconsiderate of others because they're so lost in their own loss, to nevertheless maintain that level of menschlichkeit, that's extraordinary. Says Rav Dessler, that was the 10th test of Avram, that even though he's got this manipulative Ephron, that Avram remained a mensch, despite that loss, and Sarah was 127, not 33, and yet the menschlichkeit, that's something which is an enormous, enormous achievement. What menschlichkeit, it's something which is really, really extraordinary. There's another interpretation. The Slonim Rebbe says, you know what the 10th test was? When Avram came back and found that Sarah had died, and when he said, well, what happened? What happened was, did she have a heart attack? Did she have a stroke? What happened? Did she get hit by a car, by a camel? What happened? How did her life end? What happened? And he finds out, how did she die? She heard what you did with the Akedah. What would have been justified for Avram to feel in that moment? I shouldn't have done the Akedah. I should have told God, no way. Absolutely not. We would have understood if Avram regretted doing the right thing because the right thing cost him his wife. Sometimes people do the right thing in business, in life, and doing the right thing comes at an enormous expense. Despite the greatest hope and prayer that doing the right thing will bring the right result, sometimes doing the right thing doesn't pay. Sometimes doing the right thing makes you pay. And then do you regret doing, regret doing the right thing? Says the Slonim Rebbe, Avram didn't regret the Akedah. Of course he regretted the consequence, but he didn't regret for one moment doing the right thing. That's his pshat in the, in, in the davening. I think we gave a different shot on this. Last week with Lot's wife turning around, we gave a different understanding. Salam Rabbi says, means when we do the right thing, but we find that it has a wrong consequence or unintended consequence, to never regret doing the right thing. To not regret doing the right thing. Haser Satan, remove the Satan from before me, Remove the satan from behind me. The satan from behind me is the voice that says, you shouldn't have done the right thing. It didn't pay. You see, it didn't pay. Don't regret doing the right thing. That's the voice of the satan getting you to try to regret. But I saw a third pshat. And I identify with that third pshat right now. And the third pshat 
based on Rabbi Salavechik, is what is that tenth test for Rabbeinu Yonah that's in Parshas Chayisara? And he says, you know, Avram comes back from the arcade of the most intense religious experience one could imagine. He listened to Hashem's command. He looked in his heart. He found, he found the strength and the courage to do what Hashem had asked. And after such a heart-wrenching experience, after rising to that unprecedented and unparalleled level to surpass the test of the Akedah, he now comes back and he has to deal with the mundane. He now comes back and he has to deal with the day-to-day problems of life. He has to haggle and negotiate for a piece of land which, by the way, already belongs to him. He has to buy something that he owns. You can imagine losing your patience with that. And he has to haggle and he has to negotiate with this manipulative person. And then he has to go take care of another mundane thing. The shidduch resumes and the tanayim and the band and the flowers and the menu and the wedding and the invitations and all that goes with it and the place cards. Am I leaving anything out? And you can imagine Avram looking up and saying, Rebona Shalom, give me a break. Give me a break. I passed the highest test. Now you're throwing all this. Who wants to go back to the mundane? Who could pay attention to the here and now, day-to-day problems or activities or challenges of life for these little things? Avram passes that 10th test, says the Rav, because he realizes that serving Hashem is not only in rising, through the once-in-a-lifetime grandiose gesture, we serve Hashem in the mundane, day-to-day, every day. How we behave when we negotiate. How we behave when we're putting together a wedding. Who we are in the day-to-day grind of daily life is as much a test of our faith and our character as when we rise to the extraordinary occasion of the Akedah. And maybe therefore that is the tenth test for Avram in Parshas Chayisara, that tenth test of who he will be. After the Akedah, you'd think nothing else matters. Who could concern themselves? Who could focus? Who could lower themselves to deal with the day-to-day after the Akedah? But that was the tenth test. And that was Avram's greatness, is that he found that capacity. We go find a wife for Yitzchak. What is Eliezer looking for? There's one quality. It's not that she's a size two. It's not where her brother's in yeshiva. It's not how much money the father makes or has in the bank account. Or what kind of car he drives. It's not whether the mother wears a sheta to take the garbage out. It's not. What's the only criteria the Eliezer is looking for? Which, by the way, has never been asked of me. I get calls all the time. It's the worst part of the rabbinate by far. Of the shidduch calls. I'm happy to do it for any of your children and grandchildren. It's just... Happy to do it, eager to do it, unenjoyable to do it. Is to get, to get um, grilled, to get interrogated. Rabbi, your name is on so-and-so's shidduch resume. Can I ask you a few questions? If I told you the kind of questions I'm asked, you just, you want to give up on humanity. You, wouldn't, you would not believe the kind of questions I'm asked about families, including inappropriate questions. Are you aware of any medication the boy or girl is on? I'm not. And if I were, would I tell you? Are you aware of 
mental health? Are you aware of disability? The parents, how's their marriage? Like all kinds, you can't imagine the level of questions. Financial, mental health, physical, intrusive, inappropriate. I, I sometimes say to people, I say, if I were your rabbi and this was asked and I knew this of you, would you want me to expose that to other people? And they'll ask me all these questions. I've never been on a date with them. I just, they grew up in the community. I know them. I don't live with them. I can't answer these questions. You can't imagine the kind of questions. But isn't it amazing nobody's ever asked me if I came with my camels and we were both thirsty, would she not only give me a drink, would she give my camels to drink? <laughs> nobody's ever asked me that. Nobody's ever asked me about the chesed. Appearance, IQ, mental health. Phys- uh, lineage, financial position, nobody's ever said. Does she do chesed? Would she also give my camel? Nobody's ever asked that. Eliezer doesn't care about anything else. The only thing he cares about, the only thing he cares about is chesed. Would she do chesed? That's the test. And yet, by the way, there's this real inconsistency because when Rivka's presented, she's presented as tovas mar'eh. Elias is explicit. I don't care what she looks like. That's not the criteria. The criteria is, is she a balas chesed? And yet, when she's presented, she's described as v'anara tovas ma'od. Oh, she is a looker. She's beautiful. What a beautiful woman. Well, that's not what he asked. That's not what he asked. The kliyakar is bothered by that. So the kliyakar says tovas mar'eh is not describing her external beauty. It's describing her internal beauty. Nobody ever asked me that either, by the way. I don't care externally. Is she internally beautiful? I've never gotten that one. What size is she internally? <laughs> no one hasn't been asked yet. V'anara tovas mares, says the Kliyakar internal. And with this he explains the chazal. And I reserve the right to repeat this chazal in about a week and a half. But he explains the chazal. The Gemara says... Kokala Yafos, any any bride who has beautiful eyes, then don't worry about her goof. Any bride who has beautiful eyes, don't worry about her goof. What a peculiar statement. First of all, having beautiful eyes is important, but it's one component. If one is concerned about beauty, they don't say, I don't care what the rest of her looks like, she has beautiful eyes. But even so, why would Chazal praise the most important thing is to have beautiful eyes? So the, the Kliyakar explains this, Maimar Chazal, he says, what it means to have beautiful eyes is not that they're blue or they sparkle or they're green or brown. What it means to have beautiful eyes is they look with an eye in tova, a generous eye at everyone else. Is the bride of a generous spirit? Does she give the benefit of the doubt? Is she gracious? Is she grateful? Is she kind? Is she giving? If she has beautiful eyes, don't worry about the rest of her body. What it means is, if she has a beautiful soul, the eyes are the window to the soul. If she has an eye in tova. So with that, the Kliyakar explains, that's what it means. It's not incongruous. Eliezer says, of course she should be a beautiful woman for Eliezer. But that's not the, beauty is not the number one thing. She has to do chesed. To which the Torah describes, testifies, anara tovas mareh. What happened to the internal beauty? The internal tovas mara is a description of internal beauty. Ayin tova is a description of she was internally a size two. 
Okay. She comes, the negotiation with Lavan to be able to get Rivka. They get Rivka, bring her back. Rivka and Yitzchak meet. Yitzchak ba mi ba lechai roi, hu yoshev be'eretz ha'negev, where Yitzchak is. Vayetze Yitzchak lasuach basada. Yitzchak goes out to Davin in the field. Wow, look at the time. Yitzchak goes out to Davin in the field. I was going to talk all about Mincha. He Davin's Mincha. What's so unusual, so special about Mincha, the most beloved of the prayers, says that, that uh, the Medrash says, that Mincha is so special. Always be careful with Mincha. It's Chazal and Brachos Davav. Elio wasn't answered if not for Mincha. Not Shacharis and not Marav. Mincha. The very name for that tefillah, Mincha, what does it mean? What is a Mincha? A gift. A present. Why is it called Mincha? It's a gift or present we present Hashem. Shacharis, time, I woke up, it's the beginning of my day. Marav, I've concluded my day, I can reflect. Mincha is inconvenient. Mincha is inconvenient. My wife always holds. Mincha is always at the worst time. I say, how could that be? It, it, Mincha ranges from 8.15 in the night till 5 o'clock. How could it always be in the worst time? It's always the worst time. Mincha is always the worst time. We have a joke in our home. I say, the mother is saying she has to nurse. A mother's nursing is the response to Mincha. Because Mincha is always, I, sorry, I can't do bath time. I can't do dinner time. I got to go to Mincha. Got to go to Mincha. The woman says, I got to nurse the baby. That's her... Her response. Anyway, so, so mincha is called a mincha, a gift, because it comes in the most inconvenient part of the day, and we're still prepared to offer it, to give it up to Hashem, and therefore it's the highest prayer that Eliyahu and Avi wouldn't have been answered if not for mincha. What's Yitzchak's tefillah describe? Yitzchak to do lasuach, sicha. What is sicha? It's a conversation. Yitzchak's having a conversation with Hashem. Not prayer, supplication, the distant, it's, it's a conversation. He's having a conversation with Hashem. Avram remarries, Avram dies. Yitzchak is with Yishmael last year, we talked about. Why is Yishmael back? Yishmael's back. Where did he come from? Wasn't he expelled from the home? How did he get back? What did Avram do that maintained and preserved the relationship? that allowed and enabled Yitzchak to come back. We spoke about that last year. Okay, let's go back to the beginning of the parasha. <coughs> beginning of the parasha. V'yuh chayei sara me'a shana ve'asrim shana v'sheva shanem shnei chayei sara. The life of Sarah was a hundred years and twenty years and seven years. They were the years of Sarah's life. Rashi famously says, what does Rashi famously say? L'kach nichtav shanam b'chol klal v'klal loma l'cha. Shkol echad nidrash la'atzmo. It's very inefficient. It should say she's 127. It says she's 127. Why is it written so inefficiently? Because each one is relevant in its own right. Bas kuf ke bas When she was 100... She was as innocent as when she was 20. Just like a 20-year-old, you only become accountable at 20. So too, when she was still pure and innocent at 20, at 100, as if she was in 20. 
At 20, she was as beautiful, as cute, as sweet as when she was a beautiful seven-year-old. Shnei chayei Sarah, kulan shavin Latova. They were all good. What a bizarre comment. Kulan shavin Latova. What do you mean kulan shavin Latova? Was Sarah's life all good? Nothing but good? When she was in a box on the way into Egypt, was it good? When she was barren and suffered with infertility for years, was it all good? She was taken by Avimelech, was it all good? When she thought her son was being slaughtered on top of a mountain, was it all good? Kula and Shavon Latova, all 127 were equally good years. What does that mean? We just identified all of these different, all these different milestones in our life which were not good. How could one testify about her that they were all good? So I want to share with you an amazing insight of the Drash Mordechai. I saw this Rabbi J.J. Shechter shared this. The Drash Mordechai was Rav Mordechai Druk, who was a Maggid of Yerushalayim, a contemporary of Rav Shadron, the Maggid of Yerushalayim, a great Maggid. He says, said a Svarim called Darash Mordechai. And he says the following. What does it mean, Kulon Shalom Natova, they were all equally good? Zelorak Shemashlimim Gzeres Hashem, Elagam Beshash Simcha, Modem La Kodesh Borchu Baosa Otsma Baosa Koch, he says it means that Sarah lived her life. The intensity in which she connected with Hashem in joy was same intensity with which she connected with Hashem during times of sadness, of need, of struggle. Even in sadness and struggle, her amuna was as full, was unwavering as it was in the times of joy where everything was going right. Kulan Shavim means that Sarah Zemunah didn't wax and wane. It didn't cycle. She didn't feel close if he was doing good things for her and distanced if he was doing bad things for her. She didn't have sometimes say Hashem is definitely there and sometimes he's not there. Kulan Shavim Latova. The same word as Avram, Bakol. They were all equally good. Why? Hashem Elokeinu. Because she had Hashem in her life she was able to confront whatever in life threw her way and find the good in it and live with a smile and laughter as if it was good because she trusted in Hashem in every circumstance. And listen to what the Drash Mordechai says. Amazing idea. A hundred was like twenty. Kuf, ha, kuf was like chaf. What is kuf is like chaf? Says the Drash Mordechai, open your tehillim. And look at tehillim. Kuf? And look at Tehillim Chaf. What is, what is Tehillim Kuf? Kapitol Kuf, Psalm 100, Mizmor Lesoda. Mizmor Lesoda, a psalm of gratitude. Mizmor Kuf is Mizmor Lesoda. And what's Mizmor Chaf? Yancha Hashem biyom tzara. Hashem answer me on the day of my need. And Sarah's life was kuf like chaf. Mizmor lesoda like yan Hashem biyom tzara. All seeing Hashem equally intense, equal in their faith, equal in their appreciation and gratitude to Hashem, feeling Hashem's presence no matter what. And Danny Grejar, Allah Shalom, this woman, this amazing teacher who we lost, was an absolute fulfillment of the same that was said about Sarah. Kuf kechaf. 
The last eight years she suffered in ways nobody knew. She went for chemo and radiation and treatments that would have debilitated, knocked anyone else out, made them a recipient of chesed. Justifiably, nobody's doing anything wrong or inadequate if that's them. 45 straight days she went to teach and from school went for radiation and didn't miss one day of teaching and didn't tell anyone about this heroic lifestyle because bas kuf ke bas she's still diving with the same intensity and the same gratitude and the same laughter and the same love and the same faith in Hashem. Like Sarah Imenu, 127, 33, were complete with a sense of unbelievable amuna and in serving Hashem. And only now do people look back and try to see and understand and interpret everything. One of her colleagues told me last night at Hillel in the mornings, in Shacharis, a few times a week, teachers rotate, saying a Dvar Torah to inspire the kids in davening. And last year, her, da- her speech was all about Mashiach. Within Shmona Esrei, Mashiach, longing for Mashiach, wanting Mashiach, what it takes to bring Mashiach. It wasn't entirely her personality. You wouldn't necessarily tag her as somebody who's going to speak all... He said, he remembered thinking like, why is Danny talking? It's not so her. It's speaking about Mashiach and wanting and desperate and longing and what it takes. Only now can you look back and see and understand and identify. But that same, that Sari Imenu quality that only the rare few are able to have of that Amuna, that Yancha Hashem, the Amuna and Hashem based Sara, is the same as in the Mizmor Lasoda, is the same as in the Mizmor of gratitude and of thanks to Hashem. It's incredible, absolutely astounding, incredible, incredible level. Pasuk describes, Why is it Vatama Sara, the Sforno says, Only when Rivka was born, and Avram knew through prophecy that Rivka's soul had now entered the world. Now, Vatama Sara. Before the sun can set, there has to be a new sun born. So, until Rivka's soul had descended to this world, Sarah's soul could not yet ascend on high. So Vatama Sarah, why did Sarah die now? Because Rivka had been, had been born. Vatama Sarah, Bekiryas Arba, Yechevra, Meretz Kenan, Vayevo Avon, Naspoh, the Sarah of Levkosa. She passes away in Kiryat Arba. Why is it called that? Rashi says, Hashem Arba Anakim Shayusham, there were four giants who lived there. Or, Hashem Arba Zugos, there were four couples, four pairs, who were buried there. Adam and Chava, Avram and Sarah, Yitzchak and Rivka, Yaakov and Leah. Vayevo Avram, where did he come from? He came from Be'er Sheva to Hebron to Kiryat Arba, Lispod the Sarah, to give a eulogy for Sarah, Vilev Kosa, and to cry, and to cry. Rashi says, why is he crying? Nisbacha misa Sarah l'akedas Yitzchak. Shaydei b'suras ha'akedin, z'dam an abashchita, kimad l'anishchat, parcha nishmasa mimena mesa. As we mentioned, she was scared to death from the akedah. Vayavo Avram, says the Rashbam, he came to eulogize her. He came. Even had he not been coming from elsewhere, literally, geographically, it would still be appropriate to describe him as coming from somewhere because when one comes to fulfill this charge to eulogize their life partner, their wife, the mother of their child, the mother of their children, they have to come from elsewhere. You have to put yourself in that place. You have to arrive at that destination. 
You have to get out of that mentality, says the Rashbam Vayavo. You have to come from somewhere. The Kliyakar notes, Vayavo Avram, the Spod, the Sarav, is out of order. It's out of order. But Grishauer mentioned this in his eulogy. Kliyakar writes, Milas the Sarach, and it's been Advekim, Hayalalomar, the Spod, Vilivkos, the Sarah. It should have said he came to eulogize and cry for Sarah. It didn't even have to say Sarah. Could have just said he came to eulogize and cry for her. And moreover, crying comes before eulogy. Normally one cries, and then when they can gather themselves, they give the eulogy. Here, Avram gives a eulogy, and only after does he cry. Normally the intensity of the loss, it's most acute immediately. And time heals wounds. With the passage of time, one can heal. They're never the same again. But the time is the only thing. As much as we wish we could speed it up, time is the only thing that can heal. So normally you cry, and then you eulogize. There's this... this cry, this scream with the sense of loss, and then one gathers themselves to be able to offer a eulogy. But in the case of Sarah with the loss of a tzaddikis, you're so stunned, you offer a eulogy, and only then do you realize with the passage of time the impact of this loss, and then you cry. It's out of order, because when someone's not so exceedingly righteous, when someone doesn't have such a source of influence and impact, so you cry because they passed, and then you gather yourself and you give the eulogy. But when somebody was so incredible, so irreplaceable, when their influence and impact will so no longer be felt, first you give the eulogy because you're stunned, and only then do you start to cry, because with the passage of time you realized just how profound that loss is. But Salavechik also comments, and he says, The latter refers to Bechi crying, which is indicative of a spontaneous, overwhelming, and uncontrollable grief. It's a convulsive and compulsive shriek resulting from pain. The former spode refers to eulogizing as related to another type, logical judgment. The mourner realizes the extent of the damage inflicted upon him as a result of the death of a member of his household. It's not the sudden emotional confrontation with disaster, which is responsible for Hespid, but the clear analysis of the disastrous event and its consequences. The mourning at the stage of Bechi cannot be verbalized. The grief at the stage of Hespid lends itself to objectification through words. The natural order always leads from Bechi to Hespid. Why did the Torah reverse? The same as the Kliyakar's question. So says the Rav, Sarah's death was double loss to Avram. He had lost his beloved Sarah. They had suffered together, praying and waiting for God's promise to come true. Avram loved Sarah. She lived through all the adventures, all the crises that Avram had to face. Their life was rich in common experience. Two lives merged into one. Avram cried, the beloved Sarah was snatched away from him. Her oil, her tent will forever be empty and forsaken. The blow to Avram as an individual was almost unbearable. It is not Hespid, logical interpretation which describes Avram's state of mind, but Bechi, crying, feeling, and dead desolation. However, Sarah was not only Avram's mate, but his comrade as well. 
Sarah was his collaborator, co-participant in all the great plans, hopes, and visions. Together they discovered Hashem. Together they discovered a new morality. Together they joined the covenant. In a word, Sarah and Avram started the Masorah, the tradition. Not only Avram taught the people, but Sarah as well. Avram would convert the men and Sarah the women. Now the mother is dead and the Masorah has a father but no mother. The Masorah is incomplete. Avram mourned Sarah in this respect as a colleague, teacher, and co-founder of the Masorah. The grief experienced here is classified under Hespid, not the hysterical Bechi. It portrays a different sort of mourning. Torah tells us Avram first mourned the death of the mother of the Masorah and then the death of a lovely wife, without whom his life will be desolate, bleak, and dreary. I think this is also very relevant. The loss of Mrs. Grayshower of Danny is not only the loss of an individual, a wife, a mother, but her role as a teacher in our community it's not just her three children, but it's hundreds of children she's taught over her eight years in our community who are grief-stricken, who that loss of that model, of that impact is so profound. It's hesped and bechi. It's a personal loss and it's a communal loss on an enormous level. And that's why it's so powerful, so profound and leaving such an impact and such an impression on us. There's a lot more to talk about. I mentioned in my hesped that the Medjish Tanchuma says, what was the Hesped that Avram gave for Sarah, Eishes Chayal, that last parak of Mishlei, were the words that Avram had said. And what was the, what was the, stood out in that Hesped? What stood out in that Hesped is, this is the Medrash, Darshat Semer Ufishtin. She sorts out wool from linen. So I guess I'll leave this for you as a homework assignment. Where in Sarah's life did she sort out wool from linen? And why is that the highest praise? That when Avram gives a Hesped for Sarah, and he invokes Eshashchayel. He says, Darshat Samuel she sorts out wool from linen. She, what, Yitzchak's clothing didn't have shatnas? Avram's clothing, she was a shatnas checker? That's the greatest praise you can, you can bestow upon her. It's something much deeper, it's something so much more. I'll leave that for you as your homework. Amir Tzashem for next time. Have a, have a good week.